The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop shaking your parmesan and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 192 with guest Stephen Forte. Recorded live Monday, July 17, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who produces umpteen shows a month and still finds time to write these dumbass jokes, Carl Franklin! Hey, this is Carl. Do you want to go to Barcelona in November and hang out with me and Richard and a bunch of nerds? Sure you do. Click on the Barcelona button or just go to shrinkster.com slash HHI and enter the contest. We're going to collect some demographic data from you. You get one entry per email address per week. Each week you answer a question about the current week's show and we'll draw a winner every week. Those winners get their choice of useless crap item from our useless crapabilia store. And on October 24th, we're going to pick a winner from all those weekly winners and you are going to go to Barcelona. Now you get free airfare, free hotel, and a ticket to the event. This contest is open to everyone, not just people in the United States, not just people in Europe, everyone. If you are listening to this show right now, you can go to Barcelona. You could if you win, but you're not going to win unless you go to shrinkster.com slash HHI or .netrocks.com slash Barcelona. So last week's question was, what product did Jimmy Nilsson evidently kill by blogging about it? The answer, ADO.net for entities. And we selected a winner at random from all the people who had the answer right, and this week's winner is William Devine from Lake Mary, Florida. Congratulations, William. Pick out your favorite piece of DNR swag, and we'll put you in the box for the big one. Hey, also, we're going to be in Sofia, Bulgaria, 
in uh, October, October 9th and 10th at DevReach, devreach.com. It's a great conference happening in Bulgaria. Our friends from Telerik are involved in that. Uh, also, the Tulsa Tech Fest in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Saturday, October 14th. Go to tulsatechfest.com. All right, let's get back to the real show. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. You're listening to .NET Rocks. Hey, this is the Internet Audio Talk Show for .NET developers. And today, I'm in New York City with Stephen Forte and Richard Campbell's on the phone. Hi, Richard. Hey, man. How you doing? Through the magic of radio and editing, we all sound like we're kind of in the same room. Almost kind of. I bet I sound better than you guys. That's true. You do. I know you do. <laughs> you always did, anyway. Mom liked you better than me. It's true. Steve, where are we exactly? We are on um, 12th Street west of University at Piola's Pizzeria. Yeah. In the middle of New York City. And we just sat down and ordered several iced teas and glasses of water, and, and our, our pizza has just come. What, Steve, what is this pizza here? This pizza is my personal concoction. It's actually not on the menu. It is a margarita pizza stuffed with onions and garlic. All right. So we're just going to... I got to tell you, now, we, were, we wanted to do this at Pepe's in New Haven, which is the, the mother of all pizzerias. It is it's, the pizzeria of all pizzerias by right, all others you, shall be compared to. <laughs> but you said this was pretty good, and hey, it's right down the street from your office. So it's a wood-fired pizza. It's a very thin crust. I like how they cut. It's about what? What would you say? That's 12, 13, 14 inches. Probably diameter, about right. 14. And a very thin crust, um, nice and crispy on the edges. And uh, you got a margarita, as you said, with onions and garlic. I like how they cut it in four pieces, in quarters, which is interesting. You don't usually see pizza cut in quarters. But let's just take a little sample right here. and Kind of chow down. Try it. Check it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you guys eating on the radio? Oh, man. Um, that is really good. You know, I told it's you. Not, it's not doughy. It was kind of chewy and, and crispy at the same time. And the I think the secret is the crispiness. Mm. And that's what you get from the wood stove. Yeah, excellent. Now, this place is all over Brazil, you said, right? Yeah, we started... We, it's like this a chain. Place, this place opened in New York City about a year ago, and we went here, and we inquired because it had all these Brazilian flags, and um, it's actually an Italian chain. There's a few mm. restaurants in Italy, one in New York, one in Miami, and like 30 in Brazil, because wow. apparently the Brazilians are crazy about this place. Now, you've, uh, I know you've got some experience with Zagat, which is the online rating system. Do you know what their Zagat rating is? I actually do not know what there's a GAT rating <laughs> is, but it's probably what we call 30-30-30-I, which is uh, th- out of 30 is how a GAT rates it, and then I is for inexpensive. Okay. Well, it's very good, and the good service, too. I, I encourage you to come here if you haven't. So, Stephen. Carl. Richard. You guys hey, man. just came off some kind of crazy trip where you climbed some mountain or something. And we will talk about .NET. Don't worry. But I want to get this out of the way first. Where'd you go? Uh, we spent about 10 days in Japan. Complete vacation. Even though Richard did bring his tablet PC. Ah. And, yeah, uh, but I didn't do any real work. And we didn't, <laughs> we didn't actually... It's kind of fun to be in a foreign country and not have to prepare a session. So you weren't at a conference. You just went for vacation. We were not at a conference. And at one point I said to Richard, what time's the sessions today? And he goes, we don't have any. <laughs> Now, you guys obviously have tag-teamed on some very spectacular sessions in the past. 
but I just wanted to mention the fact that you guys did climb Mount Fuji, right? Yes, we did. Indeed. And that's not as difficult as Kilimanjaro, right? It's not as difficult as Kilimanjaro, but it's not an easy mountain. It's yeah. a pretty steep and pretty high mountain. Okay. Yeah, imagine doing a Stairmaster for six hours straight. That's well, Fuji. Wouldn't, I would not consider any mountain easy, personally. And while it was probably about, um, you know, in the 90s, you know, temperature-wise, on the bottom of the mountain, at the top of the mountain, we had the wool hats and gloves on because it was freezing. About- I just think that's very cool that, you know, some that people as, as into technology and .NET as you guys are, are, you know, actually have other things and other interests. That's very cool. All right, so let's talk technology, man. You uh, are in the center of technology on the East Coast down here in New York City. Uh, what's the buzz? What's going on? What are you, what are you feeling? What are you hearing? How's, well, how's, how's .NET happening down here? .NET is definitely happening down here. We see it a lot in the, as I said, in the user group. A lot of insurance companies are here in Wall Street firms really pushing .NET pretty hard, both on the ASP side and in internal applications using smart forms, I mean, smart client. Mm. And uh, your, your company, Corzin, you we've talked about it before a little bit, but you're a consulting company? Actually, we're not a consulting company. What we do is we scrape the web Google style, grab a lot of data, and put into a big data warehouse, apply some pretty sophisticated statistical algorithms against it, crunch the data, then sell it to people, like economists and Wall Street folks and, and job boards. Speaking of Google, what's happening with Microsoft these days? They seem to be losing a lot of their talent. This has been going on for a while. Do you think, I mean, how do you juxtapose that story against all the great technology that's coming out uh, from Redmond? Well, I, What's I look going at, on here? Yeah, I look at this and I see Google and I see things like the Google spreadsheet and Gmail definitely kind of being what you would call young and scrappy startup kind of throwing things out and getting in front of the public. Very quick, short, agile development cycles. Mm. And then I look at things like Vista and Office 12 that take for big behemoth pieces of client technology that take a long time to come out. When it comes and we get it, it's going to be great. But there's definitely a big difference between the two companies. But you know, I think the expectations are very different, too. Vista is a vast piece of software because that's what we expect it to be, and it has to be perfect. I don't think anybody has any expectations for the quality of software coming out of Google. Anything Google throws out right now is going to be a hit. And a lot of it is whiz-bang stuff. That's yeah, it very... seems to be very simple applet kind of things. But the yeah. thing is, these things all have traction, and it generates the buzz. And unfortunately, perception becomes reality. So the perception is that Microsoft is big and a big behemoth, and Google is small and agile. So is that true? I, I think there is some truth to that, though, <laughs> to be honest with you. But Microsoft still makes great technology, or we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So what do you, what do you attribute that to? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, it seems that since you know Steve Ballmer took over, he sort of brought his... Harvard Business School sensibility, uh, traditional business stuff, but but at the same time they're not very traditional. I mean, they have they do community like nobody does community. Um, what what do you think is really happening? Well, it's interesting because there's almost a, a double-headed sword there. There, what happens is you have Steve Ballmer and putting into all these kind of as you said these Harvard Business School kind of kind of procedures into place. You know, getting an invoice paid today is much harder than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you'd put in an invoice, and the, and the trick was you would put your invoice date 30 days prior to the 
the actual date of today and you get paid the next day. Every vendor knew this little trick. Uh, yeah. Try doing that today. Alarm bells come off and big goons come to your door and uh, beat you silly. <laughs> now, a company the size of Microsoft today compared to 10 years ago, you need these kind of controls and yeah. vendor management systems. The problem is I think a lot of this has come into the development of software. There was an interesting article about how Alchin went to Bill Gates a year ago and said, we need to change the way that we develop software. We're developing like a big, big software shop, and we really need to get back to our roots and, and mm. build things faster and be more agile. So I think that you know, you, you kind of have both things going at play here. You think there's some collision with uh, agile sort of spreading like wildfire through Microsoft, or is it spreading like wildfire? I mean, you see more and more teams using, you know, Scrum and... Absolutely. These, uh, I, I see it practices. all the time when I talk to some of the folks out there, and more and more they keep saying, well, we don't really know what the dates of this are going to be because we're using Scrum, and, and everyone likes that because we really get the technology out in a much more organized fashion as opposed to in the past. It was kind of like, well, we're going to release this in 18 months, and yeah. now we're seeing things come out in sometimes as long as an 18-week cycle. You know, we get some of these, um, you know, web candy items out from Microsoft. Yeah. I also think that the community technology preview, the whole CTP model, is supporting Agile, getting software into the hands of the public sooner yeah. so that you get a chance to see how it works, how it feels, and so forth. And I think raise the confidence level of the customer that something is really happening. It's not FUD and you have a chance to influence the product along the way. Yeah, I definitely think the CTP push has been fabulous. It de definitely at the end of the Yukon and Whidbey cycle, when they started pushing those CTPs out pretty much monthly, everyone rallied around behind that. And obviously you saw the quality go up from CTP to CTP. And yeah. you really, you know, basically it was everything was made public. There, nothing was, you know, nothing was being hidden. And I thought that was great. And I think that, this is a beginning of a trend of trying to change the way they've been doing business. You know, over the, you know, over the last 10 years or so, they've kind of slowed down and all we've really seen was product slip. And unfortunately, you know, some of them were a little buggy and that has been reversed, I think, uh, slowly but surely. You think um, the reason so, many slip so much slippage is happening is because of critical people leaving? I actually don't. I think it's the sheer size and magnitude of the software that they're delivering. It's very easy yeah. for someone like you or I who builds, you know, moderate-sized pieces of software for our yeah, companies. Yeah, we have no idea what big software is. We have is. no yeah. clue what it takes to build something like Visual Studio. I look at it, and it boggles my mind that it, that it ever shipped yep. in that respect. So, But you did bring up people leaving, and that is something that does concern me to some degree. Are people leaving because they're getting fed up with Microsoft being a big company, and they're you know, it takes them forever to get their expense reports paid. And yeah. if that's the case, that's a problem. And I hope that gets addressed. Speaking of that, we're, you know, we're going to be talking to Robert Scoble here pretty soon. So we'll f get his perspective on, uh, on that. But, you know, I never saw, I never saw Scoble as somebody who felt like he couldn't speak his mind. I remember just like last year, he, he went on a rant about what they should do about competing with Apple and iTunes and stuff. And, you know, his, suggestions were like fire the people that don't get it you know just like this really <laughs> sort of you know <laughs> armageddon style uh you know crash and burn exactly but um we'll, we'll find out we'll find we'll find out what he thinks uh with some other people that you we were talking about mark anders yeah, Mark Anders is working with Flex, and he quietly left Microsoft when Robert Scoble left, probably because of the popularity of his blog, and he was pretty yeah. much the public face of the company. 
Yeah. Uh, but Mark Anders, you know, was the architect of ASP.net. Right. And was a pretty senior guy. And then all of a sudden, very quietly, about a year and a half ago, uh, left yeah. for Macromedia. Yeah. And there's been another, there has been a talent flight. And I think part of that, it goes back to this perception, that perception becomes reality. Microsoft's being perceived as almost as IBM in, in some degree, you know, this older company that's not as much fun to work for, that's very corporate, you know, even though they have the free soda and people dye their hair weird colors and wear shorts to work. And it's weird because at the same time, they're not IBM. I mean, they, you know, they, 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 they get community, they get empowering the developers, they're, yeah. Yeah, that's they're the transparent. Unfor- I mean, you really... That's the unfortunate part of all this is that they actually are the polar opposite of what people perceive them to be. Yeah. They really do get community. I mean, they have focused so much time and energy and money in building community all over the world, not just in these developed markets. They do it in you know, developing countries as well. And they've, they've been hiring. Microsoft's been hiring people like crazy, too. They've been hiring some good people. Any, anyone that you uh, have heard of uh, who may have crossed over to, to go to Microsoft recently? Uh, just recently, uh, Clemens Vasters crossed over the line to the to you know to the mothership, right, so to speak. Former regional director, former regional director in Germany, and and what's interesting about the hire of somebody like Clemens is he was all about community. When you hire someone like Don Box, they're they're smart people who are very popular, and Clemens is very smart and very popular. But he was really about building community. Spoke at tremendous amount of events in the developing world as well as through Europe. So that's a good sign that they actually do get it. Yeah, of course, we've just stepped all on the issue that I know is near and dear to both my heart and Steve's heart, which is getting outside of North America and working in communities that are not as mature as North America is. Yeah, and this is, this is the area that I think Microsoft excels, and it's kind of like one of the things that nobody ever talks about. They talk about the DOJ issue, or they talk about the European antitrust issues. Right. But in reality, Microsoft has made an, an amazing investment in the, in the developing world. It probably comes from Bill Gates' love for charity to yeah. some degree, and that he probably instills that in his marching orders. But I, I'm really just so impressed about how Microsoft goes into you know, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, the, the Middle East, South America, all these areas that are very still developing immature markets, for that matter, mm-hmm. that have problems with you know, power, electricity, IP yeah. issues. Uh, you know, yeah. Some countries are war-torn, and Microsoft still is going into those areas. And they're not going in there in this hard sell. They're going in there building the community. And in some areas, there are people who are not even buying Microsoft stuff. There's a large open-source movement, mm-hmm. and there's also a large movement of piracy. And Bill Gates says today's pirates are going to be tomorrow's purchasers. And I think he's, hmm. I think he's right about that. Hmm. Interesting. Now, I know that you have yourself gotten involved in some charities, especially in the Middle East. I don't know if we've talked about it on the show before. Maybe we have, and I apologize to the listener if we have. But uh, tell us about your, your project in Palestine. Sure. Um, I've been working in an institute in Palestine called PalDev. And what this basically is, is a Palestinian information technology center. And what we're trying to do is build from the ground up a learning center for folks in Palestine. Uh, right now it's in the West Bank, but hopefully we'll expand through all of Palestine once, you know, obviously the situation over there changes a little bit. But building a learning center for everyone to go in and learn about technology and really have uh, user group meetings. And so there's folks there. We meet on the um, first Thursday of every month and have a great user group. And 
you know, our first meeting, we had almost 100 people there. That was, they wow. had more in their first meeting than I had in my New York City user group meeting you know, a few years and these ago. These aren't necessarily developers. These are just people using Windows and Office and things like the, this? I would, call them, I would call them developers and developers light. It's not a kind of a meeting for a computer enthusiast or hobbyist. It really yeah. are for people who are interested in some form of development, whether it's lightweight development around Office products and SharePoint yeah. or if it's hardcore development, you know, writing... You know, writing hardcore applications. Right. Okay. And what's interesting about this is we've gotten Ineta affiliation now. So it's actually an official Ineta group, which is another area that I've been very impressed with Microsoft sponsoring yeah. with, um, around the world. Yeah, they really set the whole user group thing in motion with Ineta. Yeah, and I think it's great because it goes back to, you know, not being IBM. It goes back to mm. building community and building evangelists around the products and around the technology. Mm. And especially in these, these areas where internet access isn't as easy to come by and all these areas where even electricity is a problem, you have these Ineta groups in there providing that type of support. It really yeah. works very well. It's been an investment that I think has paid off great for Microsoft. I also read recently, I think it might have been on Slashdot, that uh, they're embracing open, some open source uh, sites or movements or communities. Um, do you know anything about that? Microsoft's open source uh, I actually haven't seen a tremendous amount of um, Microsoft kind of approach in the open source. What I have seen them is they'll have, especially like in mobility and some other products, they'll work with the community to build open source tools and add-ins to particular products that they're building. You see this in mobility a lot. You see it even on the SQL Server side a lot. And in essence, it's Microsoft supporting the actual, you know, use of this type of shared source code. The uh, the interesting thing for me, and I've used this line before about going into these uh, emerging economies, be the politest term for it, because sometimes they're really emerging, is the <laughs> idea that a guy with a laptop, intermittent electricity, and an iffy internet connection can make a middle-class living without any other infrastructure. He doesn't have to have a company. He doesn't have to have a bunch of employees. He can work by himself on these projects and live well. I really think that technology, specifically development and the related technologies around development, is a way to create a middle class in an environment where it doesn't otherwise exist. That is totally true. And an interesting point about that is my company, Corzin, has independent contractors in four countries. We have contractors in India, in Egypt, in Pakistan, and in Poland. So these are guys that work out of their homes with, as you said, an intermittent internet connection, and especially the case in India and Pakistan, intermittent power. Mm -hmm. And they're in there, and we're paying them competitive rates in their countries, middle-class salaries. And it's great for us because we have low course wa- wages, mm-hmm. and it's great for them because they're making you know millions times more than they would be making working for a company or working you know down the street at a shop or something like that. It definitely has the ability to have an emerging middle class based upon not just technology, because what happens is once you're a developer, you can build applications that people can use with a laptop and an internet connection, whether it's a data entry application or something like that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the, uh, you had some involvement in the, in the DOJ case. What was, uh, what was that all about? And we're, I'm talking about the first time, not the European Union. Oh, sure. The DOJ case, uh, pushing almost 10 years now yeah. ago, the, the, the Clinton administration brought the case for Internet Explorer. Some of our listeners will probably remember that. 
And I believe what really happened was the government was worried about Microsoft putting Netscape out of business. Right. And, and in, at, the, at the core of it, that is a legitimate concern. You don't want one company using its big power to put another company out of business. But what was interesting is I got really passionate about it because I thought that Microsoft's competitors were not innovating, so I decided to litigate. And that's something that really angered me, that they really brought the case to the Clinton administration and set them up and said, hey, you guys should be suing Microsoft. And I did get involved. I got involved with the Association for Competitive Technology through Jonathan Zuck, who most of your listeners know, who's been on the show. And what we did is an extensive lobbying campaign to the members of Congress that were involved in the case and the judiciary and everybody else. And we flew into Washington a number of times on our own dime, by the way, and went in and lobbied our congressmen and our senators and learned a lot about the case. Some of us actually testified in front of the judges and were, you know, were subpoenaed. And um, um, Heather Davison was actually subpoenaed and talked about how her business would be affected if the, if the government was going to break up Microsoft. I think some people may not remember, but the government proposed about six or seven years ago that Microsoft be split into three companies. Right. And that really angered me, uh, to be completely honest with you. And so what I did is I got involved and I, I went and spoke in front of Congress a couple of times, I think about two or three times. And um, it was actually a really rewarding experience because I got to see how politics in D.C. worked. I was yeah. a little young and naive. And I, I realized the, uh, that a lot of it happens just by greasing the palms to some degree. That, that's the thing that really got me about it is when you know, Bill Gates was interviewed about you know, when it all hit them. He didn't say, um, you, know, uh, you know, we're sorry, we, we're, we're going to try to make it right. You know, because he didn't feel he was wrong. But what he said was, you know, what I really made a mistake. He said, I, I should have spent more time and money in Washington, D.C. And if you think about it, I mean, that was just a uh, it's so true that, you know, that just if he had gone down to hang out with the senators and grease their palms and, you know, can wind them and dine, wind them. them and dine them and spend money with them, then they wouldn't be on his case. And that's now, just, I mean, it's a more polite way wrong. to put this, which was really he needed to educate the uh, pol- politicians about what Microsoft was doing and, and why it was good for the economy as a whole. And he didn't right. do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, if any if there's any complaint you can levy at Microsoft even today and for years is that they carry themselves with an air of arrogance. And in yeah. that particular case, I think it cost the company and all of us quite a bit. It definitely did. And what's interesting about that whole situation was it was going on during an unprecedented technology boom in the, com- right. in the country. The dot-com boom was in full blast. And what I always try to remind people is the day of Microsoft's kind of judgment, I think it was April 14th, 2000, the very next day was when the stock market burst and started you know, the, the dot-com well, Let's bust. be honest. Would the boom have happened without Windows technology? I don't think so. I mean, I everyone talks so about open source and Java, but so many of those sites were built because you know, Windows is ubiquitous. And Windows is what people were browsing the web with. You know? Exactly. And the browsing of the web, no matter what browser they were using, was done on Windows. So that well, was the joke was, was the browser was always free. Netscape's browser was always free. Right. Internet Explorer was always free. You know, it's a myth that there was money being lost here. Yeah. It's also a myth that there was a, you know, one was going to be able to put the other one out of business. It, you know, we've seen time and time again that if there is superior technology, people are going to go to use that superior technology, even if it's not installed by default on their operating system. Yeah. The consumer is more sophisticated than that. 
they, they're not going to use just what's by the default browser. Yeah. So with the EU, uh, what's going on with that? What's the latest? It's a very similar issue brought by some of Microsoft's competitors to the EU about Media Player and you know, the whole issue of you know, giving something away for free. And one of the things that bothers me about that as well, you know, being a free trader and a capitalist at heart, is the EU is trying to say to Microsoft, we want you to make a different version of Windows to sell in Europe because of all these violations to our antitrust laws. And what's interesting about that is the Europeans don't want it. The Europeans want the version of Windows that Microsoft is selling. Right. So Microsoft made an OEM version of Windows, and um, specifically for Europe, and not a single OEM took it. So yeah. that means you know, they had the option to. So that means the EU went through all of this trouble to protect the European consumers from big, evil, evil Microsoft. And then in the end of the day, the consumers chose to go with what Microsoft was offering. The thing that's a joke about that, if you think about it, is that the media player is like a third-rate media player compared to right. Winamp specifically and some other things that are out there. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't do half of the things that a lot of these other things do. I, I agree, and I think that some of this, you know, brought by the EU is picking on Microsoft because they're a symbol of America's power and arrogance, and they just took a very convenient thing because, quite mm. frankly, some of Microsoft's competitors went to the EU with all of their, you know, with all their data and said, hey, you guys should be, you know, looking into Microsoft. You know, the right. latest is now Adobe, which has a save as PDF feature, right. which is a free API, and... I actually use um, to, to evaluate the OpenOffice product line that has, you know, the, a, a word processor and a spreadsheet. And they have a feature where you can just go save as PDF. So you can save a Word document as a PDF. Right. Adobe does not want Microsoft to include that feature right. as part of um, Office 12 or anything in Vista. Because that'll bite into their sales of Adobe. Uh, exactly. And so now what they're saying is if you include that feature as part of Office, you have to charge more for that copy of Office. Right. Yet that standard has always been free to use. And right. as you said, I can go download OpenOffice for free, and then I should be, I'm able to then open up a document and save it as a PDF. So why aren't they charging the OpenOffice group? Right? So I, yeah. I think in essence, someone like Adobe should be, should be investigated. You know, this is very similar to Lance Armstrong. You know, when he was cleared of blood doping, they said they should investigate the investigators. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> By the way, Bastille Day, there was an American in the yellow jersey, the Tour de France. <laughs> I, de I defined my summers by watching the Mets and watching the Tour de France. And then this summer was the bonus of the World Cup. So, <laughs> the, um, the Adobe thing we talked about we, uh, we get around that issue by using Foxit Reader. You know, the issue of... You know what Foxit is? Foxit? No. Foxit is a... But my biggest complaint with Adobe is the reader. I mean, oh, Acrobat, right. Acrobat is worth buying. Uh, I'm the first to admit it. I use it, right? I do too. But the Adobe Reader is the biggest convoluted, self-updating, self-crashing, install more crap than you need piece of junk that I've ever seen. I, I, and and I it keeps getting worse and worse. So, so I think it was... was Richard, was it Scott Hanselman who turned us on to Foxit? Yeah, it? Scott Hanselman was the one who turned us on to Foxit Reader. <laughs> yes, he turns us on to everything, right? Right. Foxit Reader. I think it's Foxit-Software or just FoxitSoftware.com. And it's a free Adobe Reader, you know. And they're and using all the APIs that Adobe publishes right. freely and they that's don't right. want Microsoft to use. And that's and the part that angers painless me. painless and, you know... 
a good story on the Adobe Reader. I go to a lot of strange countries, uh, and, and they all require visas for the passport. So I have to print out the visa, and it opens up as a PDF. And then mm. Adobe tries to install all these language packs and everything. It just brings my right. computer to a screeching yep. halt. You know, absolute we, there's two halt. separate related issues here around the media player, you know, third-party media players, and Adobe's now, I think, a... Uh, 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 complacent in this as well, which is that people are getting into the habit of every time they offer you a free piece of software, they're loading spyware on your machine. They're trying to right. download more stuff. They're they're harassing you for right. using their free software. What's the best feature of Media Player? It just plays media. It doesn't try to sell me anything. It doesn't try to upgrade anything. Yeah. It doesn't try to change anything. That's what drives me mad about Adobe Reader. It's trying Dude, to install that's... the Google toolbar. It's like, none of your business. <laughs> Go away. Right. That's such a good point, Richard. Hey, you know, .NET Rocks would not exist without our sponsors. And our very first sponsor was Data Dynamics. They have been pivotal in helping the community grow with little projects like .NET Rocks and other things that they've believed in. And uh, they know this works for them because they constantly hear people coming up to them at trade shows and things saying, thanks for sponsoring .NET Rocks. And that's just great. They make a, a lot of products, but uh, the product that they like us to talk about is Active Reports for .NET. If you had uh, ever had trouble with any other reporting solutions, fear not. ActiveReports.NET is simple, yet it's very, very powerful. You create the reports in Visual Studio, you drop them on your forms, you ship them with your product, and uh, it just works. Very, very good stuff. A lot of the regional directors also use it and swear by it. So check them out online at www.datadynamics.com. A lot of very interesting stuff coming up the pike from them, too. More on that later. But while you're there, drop them an email and tell them thanks for sponsoring .NET Rocks. They were really critical in getting this show off the ground with their sponsorship. And uh, I'd like to personally thank them and, and tell them I said that. And when you try to install anything these days, it's trying to install something. I installed WinZip the other day, and, and exactly what you said. I want to install the Google toolbar, and I want to install some kind of um, MP3 downloader thing. I mean, it, it, the, all these people are pushing all this extra stuff because what they've done is to keep their free software free. They've signed these agreements that on install, you're going to get something kind of loaded on your machine. And it's just a pain. And it's not free. It ultimately hurts us because we're the guys that have to go to every one of our parents' friends' computers and reinstall Windows to get all that crap off of them. So Joe Sixpack always loses that. in these situations. <laughs> oh, you know, in fact that we're struggling and we're the experts, the regular mortals out there, their machines are nightmares of crappy software Absolutely. layered on top of crappy software. Oh, yeah. I went to my father's machine the other day and it was just ridiculous. I, I did the yeah. Microsoft anti-spyware onto it. And remove something like 90 programs. And my dad goes to like weather.com. Like that's like yeah. all he does. And he doesn't go downloading rogue software, but it just happens. And it's interesting to note that has nothing to do with Microsoft. And, and that's one of the things that gets me pretty angry is that Microsoft gets blamed for it because they say, oh, well, Internet Explorer is so unsafe. Yeah. And I, I did an experiment. I used Firefox and Firefox only for about six months on my main machine. And... Um, 
I tell you, the amount of spyware that got installed because of just things like the Adobe Reader and WinZip and other utilities that I, that I downloaded, it's amazing. And, but yet Microsoft takes the rap for, the, for mm. all of that, mm. which is unfortunate. So let's talk data. Data is always let's a good thing data. to talk about. You, uh, you and Richard have done some very cool um, talks where you do a lot of live demos and you know, with a lot of disparate kinds of machines and things. And I remember talking to you, I think it was in 2003 at TechEd, believe it or not, about a demo that you did, and I think it was with Richard, where you had uh, uh, Oracle and SQL Server, Oracle running on Linux and SQL Server running on a Wintel box and them talking to each other. And yeah, what this was, was that all about? This was a demo that Richard and I did. And uh, what do we call it, Richard? Microsoft working well and playing well with others? Oh, right. The... Uh, the Oracle under Linux and SQL Server uh, working together? We, we proposed this session to Microsoft, and they got nervous. Richard and I have done many sessions together in the past, uh, very popular speakers, and we figured, hey, maybe they'll let us talk about anything we want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to push the envelope and do an interoperability session on Oracle and SQL Server. And, the and track- we threw Linux in there just for fun. Just for fun. The evil L word, right? And Matt Nunn, who was the track chair for, for um, the data track at TechEd, loved the idea and said, you guys go, go do it. You guys rock. And then all of a sudden, all the TechEd people and the legal people started saying, hey, what's this Richard and Stephen talking about Linux at TechEd for? <laughs> so what, what was it? What was the grand experiment? Well, Richard, of course, jump in if I'm not doing it justice. But what we did is we had a machine running SQL server. And we, well, actually, there's all virtual PCs, but, which is the beauty of virtual PCs. But we had a yeah. virtual PC running SQL Server under Windows 2003, and we had an ASP.NET application. Mm-hmm. Then we had another virtual PC running Fedora Linux and Oracle 10G. And we had a database on that Oracle 10G, which is an old database that Richard and I have always been using our demos for, what, like six or seven years now? Something like that. It's a demo, that, a demo database of 100,000 contacts. And... Right. Um, we kind of took it from my old employers a GAT when I left, um, their customer list. But what we did is we changed all the names and addresses around. So there's no real names right. and addresses, but there are 100,000 or 150,000 legitimate sure. records in there. And what we did is we put this database under, or, under Oracle, and then we built a little application under using C Sharp and ASP.NET on the other virtual PC. And what it did is it talked to a local SQL server, so called local SQL server stored procedures. But you may say, well, what's, what's going on here? So we had the SQL server have an enterprise link server back to the Fedora and the Oracle 10G box. And what we did is in SQL server stored procedures, we wrapped the psql calls to Oracle. Huh. And now Richard will probably remember that we lost a day or more than a day of our lives trying to figure out why our queries weren't working when all that it was was case sensitivity. Oracle's yeah. case, case sensitivity SQL. evil. Very evil. Except in C sharp, but we won't go down that road. I, I like case sensitivity there for, <laughs> well, for constructors. Well, there was goofy things like in under using one uh, to set up the connection. It had to all be in lowercase or it wouldn't work. And uh. but to actually do the query, it had to be in all in uppercase or it wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, so you couldn't leave cap locks on. Like toss me a bone here, you know. So <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking when they built that one. But it did work after all. It, it, it worked, worked splendidly. Well, and the wicked part is that you couldn't tell from the ASP.NET app that we were talking to Oracle at all. You were just right. calling stored procedures in SQL Server. 
Right. So what we're really showing was not only an integration solution, but also a migration solution where you move the data last. That that's you a build the entire app on the other platform, and then when everything's working, you ship the data across. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to do it because um, from I'm not an Oracle guy, but from everything I've heard, uh, store, calling store procedures into Oracle has never been like a model of efficiency or easiness. Yeah, it doesn't really exist. It's not an easy thing to do to, yeah. to call an Oracle store procedure. So, as Richard said, if we're going to migrate a database from Oracle to SQL Server, the application, by using SQL Server as a facade for the Oracle database, mm. a .NET developer gets great benefit out of that because mm. what happens is they're just calling you know, the SQL client OLADB provider you know, for, yeah. you know, in .NET. Yeah. And what really started to happen was we, we moved some of the tables and then we changed the stored procedures to then call local SQL tables. And guess what? The application didn't have to change a single line of code. Nice. That's and awesome. That, that was pretty cool. That was actually a lot of fun. So it really showed that, you know, as we said, Microsoft was getting sued for not being interoperable and Microsoft really has this horrible reputation. But it was really easy for us to set up a an application that, that interrupt with Linux and Oracle really with the greatest of ease. And that's really good because what will happen is over time, people will start using these type of features and, and the perception will start to change. Richard, um, what, were some of the, uh, what were some of the talks that you guys have been doing recently? I mean, I know that uh, that was 2003. What, what was some of the more recent things you've had uh, audiences we've done- with? <laughs> it was also older talks, too. We did a soap talk before it was called soap. Yeah, Richard and I used to joke that we actually invented the soap standard because we wrote our own soap kind of protocol before the soap spec was ever released. And we've done a, this side-by-side querying talk where I show a querying example in SQL 2000, and he'd show it in SQL 2005. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a fun one because Richard wrote these really, really hard queries like that I call them SQL Voodoo. And then I got to write really, really easy queries using the new T-SQL extensions in SQL 2005. So for, for a change, Richard had to do all the work. Because usually I have to write all the grunt code because he's just like, you, you write that grunt code. I don't feel like writing it. So that session was great because I wrote all the easy code. And then we recently did a talk about a query governor. We actually went and built a governor for, um, for SQL Server 2005 that was priority-based on the load of the server and who the individual calling the particular query was. Hmm. We got to use the SQL CLR as a stored procedure, a good use of the CLR, and we got to use some of the XML show plans and XQuery extensions to T-SQL and basically say, hey, you can't run this query because the server is under heavy load, or you can run this query even though the server is under heavy load because you are a super user, you know, and that's all indicated, all table-based. And, and you're um, just using the performance monitors to, uh, to, to look at the CPU? or It actually goes a little deeper than that, as one of the things that we do is we call something called the XML show plan. Mm-hmm. And in SQL Server, you can say, show me the estimated plan mm-hmm. and without running the query. And that's the whole thing of this, is we don't actually run the query if you're denied access to run the query. So we, we query the show plan, and it comes back in XML format, and then we parse it, and we say, how expensive is this query going to be? Mm. And then we do look at some of the monitors, um, the performance counters, and then we'll say, if the, if the server's at high load, medium load, or you know, 
easy load, so to speak, you can run this query based on who you are. So we store in a table the user and then the thresholds that they're allowed to use. So if I have a, a user that's trying to run a very complex query and the server is under extreme load, they're actually not even running the query. We're not letting them run the query at all. We just run the show plan. The show plan comes back and we say, nope, sorry. I think the, the return value I put in is game over, you lose. Thanks for playing. <laughs> That it's a fine go- error message. It's a, it's much better than error four zero seven two one. You know you've exceeded your <laughs> you've exceeded your maximum locks or something like that. My so, personal favorite error though is when it says, um, you know, there's a problem with this table. Contact your administrator. And I scream back to the computer. <laughs> I am the administrator. <laughs> I'm already contacted. Gosh darn it! And I don't know what to do. Yeah. And then try calling Microsoft with that one. They say, contact your administrator. I go, gee, thanks. So you're obviously interested. You've obviously been around the block. You know a lot of the mistakes that people make when either designing databases or designing data systems. If you could pick the top five or maybe even the top one or two mistakes that people make. I could tell you the number one mistake people make in in any kind of system that is considered large. And I mean large is that it's just got to a number of concurrent users. A lot of times they try to mix the data models, meaning is they'll try to run reports and intensive queries off of the highly normalized kind of data model that exists. So I'll have an, an OLTP system that has lots of transactions and highly normalized tables. And then I'm going to go and try to run my reports and queries off that exact same data model as opposed to making a separate database that gets transformed on a yeah. hourly daily, weekly basis, whatever, it, whatever the nature of your data is. And it still is a normalized database, but you can flatten it out a little bit so you don't have yeah. to do as many joins. But you're also just reducing the load and you're not making as, as many joins. Uh, I think number two is people don't use no lock. It's just a query optimizer hint. It takes two seconds to write no lock. You say select, you know, select field name from table where you know, field name equals XX you got to put a little thing called no lock after the table name. And what SQL Server will do is not try to capture a lock on that particular table. I've seen some aggregate queries run that my staff is using um, go from taking a full minute to run to taking just a few seconds by putting no lock really? because SQL Server doesn't have to compete for a lock. And also, if you're just selecting data, who cares if it's exactly. updating underneath, right? We've well, won- the issue here is the whole read consistency thing. That if that data is changing while the select is going on and you don't have any locks in place, you have no way of knowing that those changes took place. And if you do a query again related to it, you're not going to get consistent results. The problem is that it that doesn't happen very often. It's pretty unlikely. Right. So Microsoft always errs on the side of caution for that sort of stuff. And it's probably overkill yeah. for what you really need. Yeah, it's definitely the fire hose approach. Getting back to that first uh, suggestion you made, when we interviewed Clemens Vasters about SOA a long time ago on the show, he'd said that same exact thing, that you know, you're reporting database, the database you pull reports from, this should be a totally different thing because the best structure for reports is not the best structure for storage and for access. You're so, absolutely right. It's not, you know, it's not even not the structural doing. issues, it's the contention that... Right. The way that you query data for reporting re- represents huge amounts of data aggregated over longer periods of time. And the right. way you modify data in production, at least for many systems, is much more time sensitive. It's lots of little locks, and the two don't get along. Yeah, they really so don't split get them along. Out. 
Yeah, and this is something I realized very early in my career. I started off as an access programmer, and it had the same issues. You have a back-end access database, which is really an ISAM sitting on a file server, and you have you know, 10 or 12 people kind of you know, hitting it, doing their data entry, doing their other things, and then you have the managers running reports. And what really happens is the database comes to a screeching halt. So I learned early, early on, uh, you know, this is back in Access 2.0, you know, it was about 13, 14 years ago. Now, you started as an access programmer? I actually did, yeah. So what does that say about stereotypes? I mean, stereotypes abound in this industry. I, we, every once in a while, we get a letter from some idiot who says, you know, hey, Carl, why don't you, uh, you know, take your VB knowledge and go blow yourself or something like that, you know, <laughs> every once in a while. <laughs> well, you know, and, and the stereotypes abound. I mean, what is it that, you know, just because you started working at it from the top down, does that... It almost seems like some of the more hardcore programmers will try to keep you in your place by saying, hey, don't learn that. You know, what, you don't have any business trying to understand this, you know. Do you, you see that happening? I, I, I see it happening all the time. And, I, you know, I started off as an, an access programmer. And, you know, look at the, the path you can take. You, you, you start with access and learn, you know, basic forms. And you learn about data and the relational model. Mm-hmm. And then you learn access basic, which eventually became visual basic for applications. And then when you kind of grow out of that or you have applications that are bigger, you can move to VB. And then I, that was the progression I made. And right. then, you know, eventually .NET came along and, and then, you know, rolled into .NET. And I started using C Sharp, not because I thought it was any better than VB, but oddly enough, is because I did so much work with regular expressions. It had one feature that VB didn't have called verbatim strings, which yeah. allowed me to kind of keep the regular expression inside of a string much easier than in um, Visual Basic. And I found moving from VB to C Sharp really simple, back and forth. And I, you know, we use I use a mix of both today. Mm. And I have to say that these stereotypes do exist. And I started out as um, I told you before, I was a history and political science major in college. Mm. I went to work after college as a Wall Street guy. I did yeah. credit analysis and eventually right. got into computers. And was self-taught and just kind of moved up the chain. It started as a hobby and then, you know, between Excel and Access and then Visual Basic eventually. I find a lot of people that are just starting out or maybe they're coming to it from Access or even Excel macros, you know, they sort of tell themselves that, you know, they'll never... They'll never achieve guru status. You know, they listen to the show and they see, hear all this great technology and think, oh, my God, I got so much to learn. I'm such an idiot. I'll never be able to do this. But, you know, those guys are the, are the future. Right? They absolutely I mean, are the future. And I actually and think with, with .NET, there's no easier entry path to .NET the way there was 10 years ago with Access and Excel because you really do have to learn the framework and everything else. But that being said is, you know, I think part of that comes to play is you have these smart people that were these computer science majors that talk down to them. Right. And then they throw around all these, you know, terms that they haven't learned yet. You know, I didn't know what refactoring was, you know, 12 years ago, but I refactored every day. Right. You know, I didn't know what encapsulation was, but I used it every day. Right. Right? Now I just have the terms with the features. And um, I just think it's people are doing themselves a disservice thinking that they can't move up the chain and use more sophisticated technology. A lot of it also has to do with their, you know, maturity and, and just general psychological well-being, right? I mean, absolutely. you know, you know a lot of these nerds who, and me included, you know, I say that in the most friendly way. A lot of these guys who live and breathe code, you know, they, they, they don't understand how to give that information away without being condescending. And, you know, it's the guys, every once in a while you meet somebody such as yourself or, or Richard or some of the RDs and, 
you know, Chris Sells and guys like this who who have this unlimited, it seems, uh, array of knowledge and are willing to sit down and explain it to you, um, it, it, you know, without, you know, let you ask the questions without making you feel like an idiot. And uh, that's just a wonderful thing. That's a great thing about this community. There's a lot of room for everybody. And, you know, there isn't any such thing as a dumb question. And that's what excites me about the community. I've, I've been running a user group now for 11 years. And I, that's what I love about it. I love the fact that you, you got guys coming to the user group with very little experience and guys coming with a tremendous amount of experience and everyone's yep. equal. Everyone yep. comes and helps each other. And sure, there's guys out there that are kind of snobbish and everything else, but those guys, those guys don't last long in the community. Right. They go code in a corner and they throw Twinkies under the door. One of these guys actually said to me, what are we going to do with all these VB programmers who don't know how to do this and blah, blah, blah. And I said, educate them. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what blogs are for. That's what books and conferences are for. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. You know, bring, bring them into the fold. It's that simple. It works very well when you kind of have a motivated person to learn the technology. Definitely. Well, the whole point is if they already knew all this stuff, they wouldn't be coming. Right. Exactly. And that's what the community is all about. It's about helping people. We were just speaking at a conference, and they were complaining that there wasn't enough 101 level kind of material, that it was 201 and 301 kind of, you know. Yeah. They were complaining, if you don't know what 101 is, about the not enough intro, you know, step-by-step beginner stuff, too many intermediate and expert sessions. It's interesting that Dev Connections, you know, the conference, which I'm a co-chair on, that really took off when we started putting in the the fundamentals track. Or pre-con that has the same type of technology, you know, and... And that's one of the things that the way the conference addressed that they said, well, there's a lot of user groups and pre-cons for you to go to. And um, right. but it's interesting that Dev Connections put in a fundamentals track because yeah. that's needed. I'm going to go send someone who's let's say have one of those Excel programmers or one of those guys who are very technical that wants to go that next step. Mm-hmm. Send them to that fundamentals track. Send them to that conference. Yeah, that was well, a good the idea. Vast majority of developers today come from other sources. That's the reality. There's very few people who started out as programmers. You, you know, you didn't, Steve, and, and neither did Carl. Nope. Uh, I'm, I'm a mutant. <laughs> I know, we've I'm always one. known that about you. <laughs> <laughs> so many of the talented folks, and, I, and I'm thinking about RDs because I know them, came from other disciplines, that they mm. started out as engineers, or they started out as chemists, or they started out as musicians. And became programmers because that's what actually they enjoyed and what interested them. And they able to give them a career that they can, you know, really excel at and they really liked it. Here's another interesting dynamic I've noticed that, you know, before before the community exploded around .net and you had all these people writing books and all this stuff and there was there was the framework, there was the languages, there weren't all these great products and tools. There you could be a generalist and you could you know, teach a VBNet master class or a, a C sharp class, and and cover all the areas in in fairly good detail and and be do good. You know, do well at it. Now it's so hard. I mean, there are so many technologies. A new technology, SharePoint. You know, is out there. The 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 uh, workflow foundation stuff is coming out. All the new expression stuff that's coming out. Everything that's in WinFX or .NET three You've got the Communications Foundation, you've got Presentation Foundation. All these things are coming out, and, and seasoned professionals and authors, you know, our friends, our, our RDs and fellow RDs, they're like, you know, I just, 
I, I can't be a generalist anymore. They, they have to specialize. And, and you almost could get away with it before, and you can't now. Now it's very common, for, and, and we, should all take, uh, we should all be so humble as to say, I don't know. When somebody asks you a question about something that you don't, you, you're not, un, you know, you didn't hear about it yet, or, you know, there used to be a lot of shame in saying, I don't know about that. Right. And, Absolutely right. You know. And I agree with you, is you really can't be a generalist. I think you're saying there's all this technology out there. It shows how mature the platform is right. now, and it wasn't, you know, 10, 12 years right. ago. You just couldn't do some of the things that you nope. can do today. And that's actually one of the things that I, I, I love about it is that there, there is so much that I don't know. Right. And I do know that, so I have some developers that are much older than me and much more experienced than me, and they worry. They say, oh, I don't understand SharePoint, or I don't understand this, or I don't understand that. And at my firm, we use SQL and ASP, and obviously we're concerned about security. And we're really not big smart client developers. We, have, we actually right. have no smart client apps. Everything's, it's just the nature of our business. So we have, right. we have a lot of ASP.NET, a lot of SQL Server, business intelligence stuff, a lot of regex. And um, every now and again, a new thing will pop up. And just today, one of the developers was like, I need to solve this problem. And I said, well, use query notifications. Mm. And he goes, well, I have no idea what it is. So I just pointed him to the blogs and pointed him to the mm -hmm. documentation. And, you know, boom, he was able to get it up and running pretty quick. And that's mm. the nice thing about it is yep. while you can't be a generalist anymore, you can ignore whole pieces of technology yep. and come up to speed very quickly. Right. And, and wait until you need it to, to learn about it. And it's not a big deal because it's based on some solid stuff that you already know, you, you, you find the common things that you understand, you plug in the rest, and boom, you're off to, you're, you're right. good and to go. The only bad side to all this is I, I fear that some developers are going to get typecasted, meaning is yeah. someone who works at my company for the last few years has no smart client experience, and they right. might have trouble finding a job that has all this smart client work, when in reality... They have all the they they understand the framework right. and they have, they have all the knowledge all the skills and quite frankly it's the discipline that right. matters is you know are you a pragmatic programmer the or willing not? to read the docs the exactly. willingness to read the docs I find it funny yeah it's great um, it's a great honor that a guy who's such a uh, an ASP net guru such as Miguel Castro he IM'd me the other day and said hey man how do I make a Windows form uh, gradient you know a color gradient on the background of a Windows form I was you know. You know, he's an, he's an ASP.NET guy, so he doesn't do exactly. this stuff. And, and no problem. I just whipped him off a, a little bit of code. Boom, there it is. So we have this, like, mutual respect, admiration going on, you know, mutual admiration society. Right, and if you have the discipline, <laughs> if, if you're a seasoned programmer and you have the discipline, um, so that's all in place. And then think about it. What is it you're doing? You're setting properties. Right. You're, you're executing methods and you're yep. reacting to events. Right. Yep. So the model is the same. You just have to learn how to do it. And exactly. And then, in, you know, two minutes later, I suggested, I didn't give him the code. I just said, I suggested a couple of mods. And he was like, yep, no problem. Exactly. So, so I think that's a lesson to all the listeners out there. If they think they're getting typecasted or they think they're focusing way too much time on one technology, it's all transferable with yep. just a little bit of work. Yeah. Very right. good. So, Richie, you have anything to uh, add before we uh, call the waitress over to take our pizzas away here? I think it's time to wrap it up. All right. And we've eaten a lot of pizza here today, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> we ate your shares, Richard. We're sorry that you couldn't be here with us. And my share is not an insubstantial portion of pizza either. No, we know this. <laughs> uh, I've eaten many a meal with you, and it's, uh, it's an interesting amount of pizza you can consume. <laughs> 
We've been talking <laughs> about doing this show for a long time, and I'm glad I finally got to come here and do it. So, uh, Steve, I, I guess I'll ask you the question. You know, have you seen anything online uh, or got a toy recently or anything, uh, anything new and cool in your life? Well, I have to say that, unfortunately, as my world revolves around the boring world of regular expressions, and um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, and we've recently got working with a regular expression tool called Regex Buddy. And it works really well. It takes a lot of the mystery behind regular expressions away. It's not a regular expression builder insofar as you say, you know, I need to capture this. But it, it takes a lot of the pain away from building regular expressions. So if you ever had to build a regular expression, uh, check out Regex Buddy, which is actually you pretty just cool. just Google it probably and you'll find it. And exactly. the website's regexbuddy.com. You got it. That is exactly where it is. At least one of us is at a computer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> not all of us have pizza. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of liberating not having a computer. Yeah, it's it's pretty nice. <laughs> I could have just asked the waitress. She kind of like Google climbing Mount me. Fuji without my computer. You know, Richard had his laptop strapped to his back, <laughs> trying to get Wi-Fi at each of the aid stations. I had a little one. <laughs> I left the big one at home. <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny, is traveling with regional directors on vacation is an interesting thing. So I'm with Richard, and also um, Adam Kogan was with us. And we'd be right. at a Tokyo subway station, you know, in between trains. we transferring trains. He opens up his laptop, and he's like, I'm looking for Wi-Fi. And <laughs> I'm kind of thinking, there's something wrong with this picture here. So. Kogan was out of control, and he was dragging his tank around, too, that huge machine. <laughs> yeah, the thing oh, was yeah. monstrous. Though he didn't try to bring that up, Fuji, thankfully. You should go up to an MTA authority and say, how come I can't get through my VPN here? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if they're not on strike, of course. All right. Well, guys, this sounds like a show. Thank you. Thank you, guys, both of you guys. for. I know you guys are like brothers. <laughs> it's been good talking to you both. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm going to catch a subway out of here. I'll talk to you later. All righty. Take care. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy! Life is hard, pay my taxes